Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, June 20th. It's on how to approach the intake process without spending hours on assessments. As BCBAs, we know that sometimes the new learner intake process can seem to take forever, but our learners need to get started with programming and make progress as soon as possible. So how can we streamline the intake process so that it doesn't consist of hours of assessments? Join us live on Thursday, June 20th at 12 p.m. Eastern time, as Sheer and I walk you through our intake process with lots of video exemplars of different learners and teach you how to use our assessment with ease. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At HowToABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. I am super excited about today's guest. Um, We are going to be talking about a challenge that I know all of us have seen in this field, either personally or professionally. Um, We have today the sleep expert, Emily Varen, um, who is joining us. Hi, Emily. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're so excited, like I said, because I know that this issue is so pervasive and so many kids and families that we meet, whether it's in our own family. I think that, you know, having my own kids, we never, once you have kids, you appreciate the value of sleep and you like never take it for granted ever again after you go through (laughs) that newborn stage. Um, So I'm super excited to be talking about this topic. Can we start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the field and how you got into this sleep consulting. Sure, sure. Um, So I've been in the field of ABA since 2000, so about 22 years in the field. I was a supervisor at a company up in LA, Um, moved to Orange County. At that time, I had um, just had my my second child, who was about nine months old when we moved. And so that was the sleep was the thing that I was really concerned about with my babies. Like everyone, when you have a baby, it's like some people are really concerned about the poops. Some people are really concerned about the feedings and timings and schedules and stuff like that. For me, it was sleep. Um, so I, before my, my first child was born, I had read like all of the, the parenting sleep books because I was totally intending on um, getting her to sleep through the night, like the minute she was born. <laughs> Okay. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. That's not realistic. Um, but as I was going through all of the books and I, I I literally read six, there were six books that were like my go-tos and that I kind of piecemeal from, they were all ABA. As I read through them, I just said, this is all, you know, extinction, basically. (laughs) That's all there was. Um, Um, so, uh, you know, so I, I kind of took all of that information with the schedules and, uh, uh, sleep hygiene and things like that. When I started my new company, when I started with my new company in 2010, on the first day, when I went out on an overlap, um, there were the three kids that we overlapped all had sleep problems. 
And so I just sort of said to the supervisor who I was shadowing, I said, you know, I have some recommendations here that I think will be, you know, helpful. You know, some of it was about timing. You know, one of them was like a seven-year-old who was napping in the middle of the day or something like that. You know, I mean, just little things like that, that I said, you know what, let's, let me, let me see if this, this is, you know, works for a seven-year-old. <laughs> Basically, no experience. I, I had no idea. Um, but then, like, the day progressed like that. And sure enough, um, Dr. Andy Nicholson-Brennan, um, who I'm, I'm still very close with, um, came to me, like, a week later and said, Emily, they're all sleeping through the night. She's like, you have to do this. So it was with the encouragement of my agency that I started taking additional CEUs, like from um, Gregory Hanley. He was really the only guy. He was the sleep guy before he was the the practical functional assessment guy. Um, So I took two different CEUs with him and they were very similar um, about sleep, but really that was it. (laughs) There weren't, there weren't very many other resources, but what he opened my eyes to is how we can use things like shaping, how we can use things like fading, how we can use things like intermittent reinforcement of positive behaviors, of desirable behaviors, right? Um, how we can use these other ABA strategies to also achieve the same thing. So it had me kind of thinking outside the box of extinction. And that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I I love that. I love that story. I um, wasn't a BCBA until after I had my kids. And I'll never forget my firstborn was an impossible baby, an impossible child. And I had no idea what to do with him because he would never sleep. And somebody gave me a book. I, I don't even want to say what it was called because of the rest of the story. And, you know, it gave you a whole method. And it was like, by the end of this book, your child is going to be sleeping. And it did not work. And at the time, I had no idea. I didn't know what ABA was. I didn't know what a BCBA was. I kind of like one, you know, wish I had those tools back then. And it didn't work for me. And I felt like the worst parent. I wanted to like throw this book out the window. And I wanted to say like, there's no system that works for sleep. Um, but I get how parents feel that discouraged because mm-hmm. when it doesn't work for you and you don't have the support, you feel like a bad parent. Like you yeah. feel like it's your fault. Right. Well, I mean, I think a lot of moms put a lot of pressure on themselves because they think they should know what to do. But we don't live in a village anymore, right? I mean, there used to be aunties and sisters and cousins and grandmas who would nurse our babies and who would, you know, where we weren't the only sole caregiver. I mean, we were raising our babies with a lot of other babies and a lot of other caregivers. And so now that we're so isolated, we, we just have this feeling that we should know what to do. And sleep is really not super concrete. It's not. And it's so, something that everybody talks about because it's, you know, I feel like it's the right to parenthood, right? So, oh, you're sleep neglected. Perfect. Now you're a parent. Welcome to parenthood. Right. But nobody tells you what to do about it besides extinction based. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a need because like Shira said, parents do feel like failures. So they let their mm-hmm. kids sleep for the day, or it's just something that they have to do to get by because parents need sleep as well. And sure. you know, so they're often, you know, um, for lack of a better word, messing survival. up routines mm-hmm. because it's survival for them and mm-hmm. it's exhausting. And I get it as a parent now, I'm like, Ooh, I get it. Like the whole sleep problem is real. But you know, the other really big thing that I'm seeing is that sometimes just little small tweaks, like you were saying, offering things like, well, you know what, this child maybe, you know, can skip this nap throughout the day, or this child needs a better bedtime routine, or this child needs this, or this child needs that. 
makes not only a huge difference for the parents, because it's like, you know, you're no longer sleep deprived, but also for the students. And I see sometimes that setting event of just you know, teaching kids to be able to sleep through the night Mm -hmm. goes a long way to ABA programming as well. And it's almost like if you could draw that line down the graph and say, this is when sleep training started. And this is when, you know, the students started sleeping through the night. And you can often see that skill acquisition on every other program. And behaviors go down. So behaviors go down, acquisition goes up. And, and this is why I offer in-house CEUs to, um, to companies, to ABA companies, so that everyone in in their BCBA world, everyone in their office basically is speaking the same sleep language so that they can everyone can help each other, you know, with the programming and with bouncing ideas back and forth. Um, but you know, even bigger to have this kind of this understanding that it doesn't always look the same in every single house. Right. And that's what ABA brings to the table. We're individualized. We're individualized. We're not a book. We're not just like, here, do this, here, do that. You know, we're like, oh, this child needs this. Maybe it's the nap. And yeah, there's not, an art to it. There is an art to it, but it's it's learnable. It's teachable. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, but but this is, you know, you know, this is where we can say this isn't necessarily without outside of our scope. You know, mm-hmm. we're BCBAs. This is behavior. This, these are just setting events. We all know about setting events. Like we know if, you know, the TV is blaring that they're not going to fall asleep. Right. Mm-hmm. And so often we forget to ask, like, if we're dealing with a case of a child with challenging behavior, the most important thing I think to tackle first is, is this child sleeping and what is their nighttime routine? And if you leave that out, I think you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle because so much of their day behavior is going to be affected mm. by their night. So oh. I'll often recommend starting with that before tackling the behavior. So that's what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought for a a hot second with what- um, Brought you back. (laughs) With what Shana was saying and it brought me back. But there is, you know- there, there is a direct correlation between sleep and behavior and sleep and skill acquisition, right? And so if we are, what you're saying here is if we're neglecting the sleep, there's no way we're going to make more progress, Right. So if we see these flatline graphs and as BCBAs, we are trained to analyze the graphs. Right. If we some, see something either flatlining or going in the opposite direction and we're sitting there, you know, you know, knocking our heads going like what? We don't know. We haven't changed anything. Are we asking about sleep? Yes. yes. Some of us don't because we feel like it's outside of our scope. That's right. And some of us don't because we don't want to be there at 6 a.m. or at 10 p.m., right? And we need to let BCBAs know that it's possible to be able to train parents to put that in their hands so that we're not there at 10 p.m. We can give them the tools. Exactly. Uh Yeah, and that's why I really promote these non-extinction-based programs because, you know, we can say to a parent, like, oh, just ignore it, just walk them back to bed a hundred times. But really, there's an ethical gray area there where are we setting the families up for failure if you have a child with self-injury, with property destruction, with, you know, aggression, something like that, you know, are they going to bang their head against the wall if we put a change in place like extinction? Are we just saying like, okay, well, you know, here's what you do. And then, you know, then there's shame involved in it. So the the supervisor comes out the next time. How did it go? (laughs) 
<laughs> and the parent uh, doesn't want to tell you like I wasn't able to do it. You know, the, you mm-hmm. know, we don't want them feeling like failures. Mm-hmm. So I, I do I, a lot of programming during the day during ABA therapy, things like waiting. A skill like waiting. <laughs> we need to be able to wait. <laughs> we need sure. to have be, be comfortable being alone. We need to maybe have the child practice being alone in or in their sleep space, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe they've maybe they've never actually slept in their room. Maybe there's a room there with a bed that they've never slept in. <laughs> yep, I've <laughs> the, seen that. <laughs> right. We've seen yeah. that a bunch of times. And we're and you know, as the ABA team, you know, it's not nice to go in and say, oh, they're 12 and they're still co-sleeping. Mm-hmm. Like parents didn't choose that. <laughs> right. So I want to get to all of these like non-extinction based because I'm so curious as to what they are. Um, I want to start with, you know, I know what it's like to have a newborn. I know what it's, how high that negative reinforcement is to start developing some of these habits that are not, mm-hmm. you know, not long-term functional. But I also know that with a lot of typical kids, they grow out of it. It's the newborn phase is hard and it's challenging. And like, even if you mess up a couple of times, like most kids will like adjust and, you know, my kids are not sleeping in my bed anymore, which is great. Yeah. Um, but how do some of these problems develop? I know, especially with kids who don't adjust and mm-hmm. who want to start with some of those habits are yeah. very hard to get them out of. Yeah. Um, so what's your take on how some of these real sleep issues are happening? Um, so often they do start in infancy and parents don't have a broad scope of knowledge about how sleep works and how the things that they think are helping precipitate sleep are actually stealing from healthy overnight sleep. So part of it is just raising awareness in the population in general, um, of how, what we're doing at bedtime is really possibly sabotaging, you know, sleep overnight. A a lot of parents say to me, gosh, you know, they fall asleep fine, but they won't stay asleep. So that's a big misnomer. No one stays asleep all night long. Zero human beings stay asleep all night long. So if you can like, you know, imagine like the rainbow, right? No one falls asleep at bedtime and wakes up in the morning. That's not how sleep works. If we think sleep works like that, though, we're going to think, wow, they fell asleep here. What's what's happening here? Why isn't it? Why isn't it sustaining itself? Why don't they stay asleep? So, you know, if we understand sleep more as like a wavelength up, down, up, down, light, deep, light, deep, light, deep, shifting all night long. And we see these light awakenings and and we're, uh, you know, where we turn over or we stretch or we blink our eyes open in between dreams, or maybe we try to connect our dreams, right? The dream was so amazing. And we're like, Oh God, just hold on to, Oh, go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Like, Oh, it was so beautiful. And you're trying to like bring up all these, like, right. We all know what that is. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Those are awakenings, right? So we wake up all night long. So I like to teach parents that a whole night's sleep is really bedtime on repeat. Whatever happened at bedtime, needs to happen here and here and here and here and here all night long. Sometimes just with that basic amount of knowledge, parents go, oh, oh, like, yeah, like we don't have bedtime on repeat in our house. I put the baby to bed and then I leave. Right. I, I, I hold my child, you know, and then I put them down and then I leave or, oh, no, they they fall asleep in our bed and then we just transfer them. Right. That's not bedtime on repeat. That's you get bedtime once and then whatever happens in the middle of the night, 
Yeah, chaos. <laughs> chaos. Chaos. So that's why, you know, focusing on bedtime, bedtime routines, bedtime expectations, you know, figuring out where the skill deficit is. Is it that the child doesn't, you know, has terrible, let's call it separation anxiety. I don't like calling it anxiety because now anxiety is like a buzzword. I call it separation awareness, right? Separation awareness <laughs> comes and goes throughout childhood, right? So if your child is experiencing this separation awareness throughout the day, and we see it all the time, parents say, yeah, no, they follow me around the house all day long. Or no, I haven't gone to the bathroom by myself in six years. Mm. Or no, I can't leave the room to go get a glass of water. Or they cry when I go change the laundry. Right. These are red flags that sleep probably isn't going very well either. And the time to work on it is probably not in the middle of the night. And the time to work on it is not in the middle of the night. It's not even at bedtime. Yeah. Because in our brains, in, in the maternal brain, let's call it, we know how important sleep is. So we will do anything to get our children to achieve it. Not for our benefit, because we're wired, right? We're wired to, to help our kids survive, right? We're wired to keep them alive, basically. <laughs> like, keep the human alive. That's really the whole goal of parenting. Isn't it? Um. <laughs> Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so the ABA team can be so pivotal teaching. OK, let's teach healthy separation. Are we going to start with a minute? No, because the child cannot wait one minute. <laughs> so we start with three seconds, five seconds. Sometimes we start with peekaboo. Sometimes we start with what I call obvious hiding. We're mm -hmm. like, you go, OK, I'm going to hide. And then you kind of they watch you crouch down behind you know, the furniture, and then you pop back up really fast and you go, oh, you waited or depending on how old the child is. Right. Sometimes we're dealing with this with seven-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 12-year-olds. Wow. Um, sometimes it just doesn't go away. And we, and we have parents who just have never taken a shower without another set of eyes. Um, so I'm curious if you think the root cause of a lot of these challenges is, you know, the way that they're wired where like some kids don't sleep well, or is it, you know, those, those habits that they're learning right from the beginning, or is it a combination of both? It's probably a combination of both. I mean, the thing is uh, another learning point for, for families is that sleep changes constantly throughout childhood, right? So you may have gotten it right in infancy, right? You may have gotten it right at four months and it may have been like awesome at six months, but then we noticed around a year, their sleep falls apart. Three years, two and three years are also another time when they are these like, <clears throat> they call them like sleep regressions. I hate that word because it's a progression. The sleep cycle has actually progressed. Nothing has regressed except us. We just haven't flexed. <laughs> it's our fault. I mean, you know, I mean, we don't ever want to admit that, but like, it's our fault. Like, but, but we don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So we don't see that, okay, at a year, they probably only need one nap and they can tolerate like five hours awake. Well, if you're still getting two naps and then your main complaint is that they just don't fall asleep at night, okay, well, time to go down to one nap. Or even around like two and a half or three years when the nap drops altogether, like are parents being taught how sleep changes? So sometimes we could have perfect infancy. They were great sleepers as a baby, but then around two years old, it fell apart. And the interesting thing about that in the autism community is that so many parents are told it's because of the autism. 
Such a circular argument. It's like, you can't sleep because you have autism and you have autism, so you can't sleep. And it's like, you got to fix this problem. Yeah. And there is a bi-directional relationship, right? Correlation. It is a correlation because um, like sometimes symptoms of autism can impede on sleep. Like um, if you have a, a child who craves up and down vestibular motion, a lot of jumping, a lot of bouncing, that's alerting sensory input. If they're doing that at bedtime, they're not going to fall asleep, right? So it, it is going to look like, okay, but is that the autism causing the poor sleep or something that's in our control? See, if it were just the autism, it would be out of our control really, right? Um, but it's sometimes these sort of symptoms or characteristics or byproducts of the diagnosis that then kind of roll over and play into sleep problems in the autism community. You know, I mean, look, we have behaviors that last longer into childhood, right? So tantrums that usually go away around three or four years old in, let's say, the neurotypical population kind of persist, right? They persist into childhood. Um, So things like that, we just see later on, we just see it persisting a little bit further into childhood. And there's a lot of, you know, not separation. There's a lot of um, guilt sometimes associated with it. So parents have said to me, you know, I just feel so bad because they're so, you know, they're so impacted by autism. Like, I don't want to set these boundaries at bedtime. That's the only time we get to cuddle. That's the only time they show me any intimacy. That's the only time they send, you know, show me any connection to which I say, great, take it. I'm not here to say that's wrong. That's bad. You know, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I raise awareness. I tell them if that's the way you connect with your child, do it, do it until it's a problem. You know, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem (laughs) until it's a problem. But (laughs) yeah, I also, um, you know, when we were talking earlier, you're talking about a family centered approach as well. And um, I love that you take that approach because like you said, you know, it, if it's a goal, if sleep training is a goal, obviously you target it. If it's not a goal, you, you can't target it. It's yeah. sure you think it's a problem as a, you know, as a clinician coming into the team, but if the family says, no, it's not a problem, you can't yeah. do anything about it. Um, or if sometimes you walk in and, you know, um, different, you know, different cultures have different values and you have to, you know, make sure that you're aware of those and, mm-hmm. you know, work with the family instead of saying, you know, well, no, 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 you have to do it this way. Um, yes. Being able to work with the family. Yes. Yes. And because, you know, cross-culturally, co-sleeping and family bed sharing is the norm. Like We're very weird in Western culture. People look at us like we are crazy, that we have like one bed for every butt and one room for every human. That's weird. That's weird. And that's not how the world works everywhere else, (laughs) except for like the Western culture. You know, we do see family beds, you know, family bedrooms, you know, co-sleeping all the way up until um, in some cases, marriage. Sometimes they go from the family bed to the marriage bed, you know, Um, and and we just have to understand it. There was one time where I got uh, referred to a client within within our agency and and the supervisor was all upset, like, you know, the child's 18 years old, you know, still sleeping in bed with parents and they're all freaked out and they're like, they're never going to learn anything. They're not going to have any boundaries. So I come in and I'm like, all right, let's, 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 let's. they have like six kids and they all sleep in the same room and they all sleep in the same bed. And 
I asked the parents, I said, is this a problem? Is the having, you know, that, you know, young adult in your room, in your bed, like with the family, is it disruptive? Is he snoring? Is he getting up in the night and like touching people? Like They're like, no. So it was really just a lack of awareness on the supervisor's part to say, that's not a problem. Like, that's not a problem. And so then, you know, we had a lovely conversation about the, you know, the client's behavior that had nothing to do with sleep. And I gave supervision mm-hmm. in a normal mm-hmm. way of parent training. But then had nothing I, to had, do with sleep. I also had those families who do know it's a problem, um, who, you know, are, they say, I don't want my child sleeping in my bed anymore or whatever that looks like, but then have such a hard time making any changes about it. Um, how can we, as, you know, clinicians support those situations and what do you recommend? I think that like, how do we approach it starting small? How do we get that change to happen? Yeah, definitely starting small and definitely it depends on the age of the client, right? It depends on the age of the consumer that we're working with, um, how we go about those changes. But what we, what we sometimes neglect is the desensitization process and the fading process of, Hey, if this kid has never spent time in their room, let's spend time in their room. Like during the day, let's hold ABA sessions. If ABA is really positive and happy and the child, gets excited when the, the RBT walks in the room. Um, if they love ABA session, have ABA session in their room, associate it with happy because the thing that happens where where parents get stuck is that they go right into change and then it becomes aversive. And so now we've created an aversive association with the bed or the bedroom. And now the child doesn't want to go in there because they know it's a place of separation because they know it's a place that bad things are going to (laughs) happen. And they know that it's a place of escalation and it's never really been, um, taught or exposed as a place where it could be happy and fun and a place of connection and a place where, you know, mom or dad are are getting some giggles going from the child or playing on the bed, right? When, um, when we change from like a crib to like a big, a big kid bed or something like that, no kid is just going to like go into the bed and be like, night. (laughs) It takes, it takes a little massaging. So I think sometimes we skip over that desensitization process. Right. And so we, we go, we go right to change basically. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think affording families the opportunity to say, Hey, like you don't have to start at the end of the chain. You don't have to start like, putting them in their room every night and then trying to work through the behaviors of you leaving. I, I almost feel like parents also need that desensitization where they don't, they can feel those small successes and they feel like it's not overwhelming for them because yes. as hard as it is for the child to change their habits, these are parent habits too. And this has been working for them. Right. So I and think that we, we need to approach it that way. Right. And if we start with Oh, you know, you're just going to need to put them in their bed. That's it's never going to work. It's going to backfire. But if we start with, "Hey, have you ever considered playing with your child in their room?" And they're like, "No, like the room is storage now. <laughs> we just keep boxes in there," which is sometimes what happens because, you know, it's just been persisting so long. So we start with play. We start with something mutual. We start with um, connectivity. We start with happy. We start with joy. We start with making associations that are pleasant for the child. And then we work on the parent leaving for a second or two. 
so we give them, we give families these, um, you know, smaller, more measurable things that they can do during the day that we're not having them implement right at bedtime, which is the critical period, right? You know, other things that that sometimes contribute to poor sleep are things like screen dependence, right? Mm. The blue light coming off of our screens. If we can work on screen dependence during the day so that the parent isn't taking the, the device away at bedtime, that happens so often. And then they have these big behaviors. So they just let the child fall asleep watching the device because that's that's the only thing that works, right? It's the only thing that works. So as the ABA team, we can come in and say, hey, look, screen dependence is a problem. We know that terminating the device is a problem and it's playing out. I guarantee you, it's not just at bedtime. No, This isn't something we're seeing only at bedtime, just like the separation awareness. We're not seeing it only at bedtime. So if we see these very common behaviors that are also contributing to poor sleep, we can start those during the day. So let's start with during the ABA session, not using necessarily the device as the reinforcer. Maybe we don't do that anymore. Maybe we find other things. You know, I think the devices are so easily accessed right now. Um, and they're, and they're so reinforcing to families and they're so reinforcing to the children that it really is mutually pleasant right? It's a mutually pleasant experience. Parents get some downtime. The child is quiet and happy. We know they're safe and not getting into any trouble, right? But it is a sleep killer. So how much does it affect sleep? Like besides uh, for the separation of the device, what does it do? A hundred percent. I mean, adults have problems with this. So mm-hmm. I guess we, this is a good, a good time to talk about blue light exposure. So like, so our devices, all of them, our Androids, our Apples, our tablets, our computer screens, um, obviously our phones, any kind of smart screen is LED technology. It's LED light. LED light is blue light wavelengths, right? So I forget if it's short or long. It doesn't matter. That's a science. That's not my thing. (laughs) It's the same wavelength basically as the sun. So when we are looking at a smart screen, especially if we're looking at it in the dark, We're getting that concentrated blue light right into our eyeball holes and our brain goes, oh, it's still daytime. So we don't produce melatonin. So when we are doing this at night and we're just like doing the endless scroll and then adults come to me and they're like, yeah, I can't fall asleep until like one or 2 a.m. And I'd say like, well, what what are you doing until one or 2 a.m.? And they're like, oh, I'm just kind of on my phone. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, let's start there, right? That's an easier place to start than, than oh, there's a problem with your sleep. And, and then so supplementing we- melatonin and then going on medication. <laughs> and then it becomes a whole Just cycle. Big cycle. Yes. And enough, you know, not enough practitioners are really asking the question about screen time before they actually give melatonin. And they're also mm-hmm. not asking about things like daytime sleep and nap. There are so many things that contribute to delayed sleep onset or sleep latency that aren't melatonin production. Hmm. Kids on the spectrum can be, there is evidence now that they can be low producers or that they metabolize melatonin slower. So they're metabolizing their melatonin all day long. So sometimes we see that they have kind of a consistent amount in their bloodstream over, you know, over a 24 hour period rather than a spike at bedtime and then a petering off 
till morning. And then it basically goes away until bedtime again. So kids on the spectrum sometimes metabolize it slower. So they get like a little bit more like this kind of melatonin um, or they're just low producers. But I would say just, you know, in the last 12 years that I've been treating the population, most of the time it's not a melatonin production issue. Mm. And that's just anecdotal. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I can't say that, oh, never, because sometimes it is. But there's no harm in starting with the behavioral stuff and the systemic stuff and the, you know, like the systems process and, and routines and things like that to maybe avoid you know, a, a melatonin supplement or sleep medicine or, you know, these kind of sedatives because sedatives don't actually give us healthy sleep. Right. And for sure, not for the night wakings, you know, because like you said, you have right. to be putting yourself to sleep all night. Right. And so then, you know, they'll say we give another melatonin in the middle of the night. And so now they're using it as a sleeping pill when that's not the function of melatonin. I mean, melatonin doesn't work like that in our brains. Melatonin, like, signals all the other sleep hormones. It doesn't actually precipitate sleep. Hmm. So people are using it like a sleeping pill when it really doesn't have a sedative effect. It's just a hormone that, I don't know, can you guys get it on the shelves in Canada? Yeah. So in the US and Canada, I think are one of the only two places on the planet where we can get it in the supermarket. <laughs> wow. Everywhere else it's prescription only. And they don't prescribe it typically to kids. They prescribe it to people over the age of 50. In fact, it was, interestingly enough, it was big news in Australia that you could get it without a prescription, but you could get it without a prescription only if you were 50 years or older. <laughs> that was like the big news in Australia, wow. like a wow. year or two ago. Very different than here, for sure. <laughs> Very different than here than, it, you know, look, they're selling it in gummies and like, oh, if sleep is your problem, then melatonin is your problem. When it probably isn't. It, it, it probably isn't, especially for us, like adults. Yeah. Unless you're over 50, you're probably a great producer, but we're sabotaging ourselves with screen time, a poor sleep hygiene, wrong kind of lighting at bedtime, wrong kind of bedtime, you know, routines, mm -hmm. things like that. So, I mean, <laughs> like, look, to answer your question, there are lots of things that we can do at bedtime and, you know, before sleep happens to really enhance you know, sleep efficiency, how quickly we fall asleep, basically. Mm -hmm. And we can teach a lot of these things during the day and, and work on some of these boundaries and things like that during the day. Which we should do. So as BCBAs, like you said, we're not really trained to work on sleep or to identify sleep. So what could a BCBA do to either get better training or to be more aware of these things? What questions to ask? What can they do? Um, they can take my CEUs. <laughs> <laughs> so, more on that, so they go to your website. Yep. They go to my website. It's just shop CEUs. So I have basically two buckets of service. One can be where a, a company can actually come to me and hire me for the in-house training and in-house CEUs. And they can, as a company, provide that to their BCBAs, which I love. That's my favorite. That's, that's my favorite, um, set up because then, like I said before, like everyone's kind of speaking the same sleep language and we can really support each other in analyzing the sleep and asking the right questions. Um, if you are, let's say if you're out on your own and you're not part of a company, or if you just want that training yourself, I have, um, just the online asynchronous CEUs where you can just go and it's, um, you know, it's like a self-paced course that takes you all the way. It, it teaches everything about how sleep works in the brain, how it impacts autism or how it's correlated with autism, 
bedtime considerations, ethical considerations, because I mean, really it's an ethical problem. It does become an ethical problem when we're giving advice and we don't have the whole picture, right? Like we, you know, as behavior analysts, we can watch, we can watch a child over, we can be there at 10 o'clock, right? We can watch it happen and we could watch it happen 10 nights in a row. We can videotape it and we can analyze that. And it's always going to look like either attention seeking or escape avoidance, which isn't wrong. Like that's not wrong. But what if we offered the child bedtime at the wrong time? What if they were sleeping until four o'clock and they're seven years old and we're like, oh, they're just attention seeking at bedtime at nine o'clock. Well, that, that child is not going to fall asleep at nine if they slept until four. That's just not, it's just not happening. But we can look at the behavior and say, ooh, attention seeking or ooh, you know, ooh, escape avoidance. Well, fine. It's not wrong, but it's also an ethical gray area to be like, oh, no, you just need to walk them back to their bed a hundred times because they're just being noncompliant at bedtime. That's wrong. (laughs) They're being offered bedtime at the wrong time. So then what are we teaching? We're basically let's let's go down that route and say, okay, as a BCBA, I've I've gotten them. Look, we fixed it. Parents walking them back to bed worked because it will. But now we have a human who's laying awake in bed compliantly for two hours because they slept until four because it's been different. Right. Exactly. So it, it is not wrong what we're telling the families because based on our analysis, it's correct, but we're implementing something without all of the information. Right. Right. The whole picture. Right. Or, or were they on their screens, you know, and we're trying to get them to fall asleep, but their melatonin, there's like no melatonin on the horizon because they've been on a screen for two hours. Right. They're not going to fall asleep. Even if it is their bedtime, that bedtime is going to push an hour, two hours, up to three hours is what the research shows. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more to the onion that can be peeled back, but, you know, as BCBAs, I don't see it as being outside of our scope of practice. It's act, it's the information that I teach is accessible online. It's accessible. It's not a secret. It's not, you know, necessarily, you know, a a sci- I mean, it is the science, but you know, you don't have to be a, a sleep specialist okay. to know that what precipitates sleep is going to need to be there all night long. That's in every single baby book. <clears throat> That's in every single book, right? You have to fix how they fall asleep to fix the night wakings, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, uh, you know, sleep training 101, let's call it. So it sounds like what you're saying is if we are BCBAs, we're consulting to any kind of sleep challenge, we really have to make it our business to know the topic and to do the research and not assume that with the behavioral principles we were given, that's enough. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so that's what I teach in the CEUs really. Um, And that's why I teach to companies or in the individual ones is just how do we know what questions to ask? What dimensions of sleep do we have within our scope accessible to us that we just maybe don't know? Right. Like all the, all the sleep books say, you know, don't, you know, don't help your kid fall asleep because that's what's causing the night wakings. Right. That's not, (laughs) I didn't make that up. (laughs) That wasn't mine. Um, But when we see it playing out at like seven, eight, you know, 10 years old, and we're still seeing these multiple night wakings, 
because we're still seeing, you know, kids are dysregulated at bedtime, right? And so parents go, they're dysregulated. So I need to lay down with them to help calm them down. Well, why did that happen? I'm curious. I go at that with a curiosity, not that the parent is weak and that, oh, they just, you know, don't have it in them to, you know, leave the room. That's probably not it. It was probably either the child was getting up and down vestibular motion. They were on the trampoline until 10 o'clock because the families thought that they were regulating, but really they were stimulating, you know, or they're getting screen time too late or they were napping during the day. So usually families of older kids get into these like habits of supporting their kids to sleep because of something else. And once we fix that something else, we can get them out of the bed. Mm. We can get them out of bed pretty pretty seamlessly, usually, Mm -hmm. you know, having the right bedtime, having the right bedtime routine, you know, uh, controlling those setting events, not jumping and crashing, not, oh my gosh, getting the wiggles out of bedtime. Mm -hmm. I let them run around so they can get the wiggles out of bedtime. Oh gosh. I do a lot of teaching on that (laughs) because what we're doing is we're raising the core temperature. We're, we're actually escalating, you know, we're, we're making the core temperature hot. We're elevating the heart rate. We're doing everything to stimulate the brain. And then we're like, go to bed. Oh, wow. <laughs> the kids laying in bed like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and they won't. And then, guys, right. Yeah. And then they're yeah. not calm. And so parents think, oh, I need to go help them calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But maybe if we just take the wiggles, like getting the wiggles out, out of the bedtime mm-hmm. routine, mm-hmm. And we, we're, we're going to see a calm body, mm-hmm. which is really what parents are trying to achieve. Yeah. And I mean, this topic is so fascinating. And like I said, it affects us all. I do have one more question. It could yeah. may or may not be sleep related, but we do have a large audience of like newly minted BCBAs or BCBAs who, you know, just gone to the field. Um, what is your best advice for somebody who's just getting into this, this area? You mean as a BCBA interested in sleep? Or just a, BC, a new BCBA who's, oh, who's a new starting BCBA. in their career? <clears throat> no. Oh, just a new BCBA. Oh my gosh, just ask all the questions. Just ask all the questions. You know, just because we get our BCBAs doesn't automatically make us the experts. And it's okay not to know. I I really, I think, struggled with that. I was starting a brand new job right as I got my BCBA. So I took my certification at the end of 2010. So it, you know, whatever they do it, like it was like January 2011 is when my certification hit. and I was like, okay, now I have to know everything. <laughs> Big misconceptions. <laughs> right. After that magic certificate doesn't yeah. matter, yes. right? And, and I think some people, there's a lot of... Um, you know, I mean, ego is probably a really like big word, but there, there's some ego there where we don't, where now we have the BCBA. Now people are looking to us and we feel like we have to have the answers. And if I were to have gone that route with sleep, I would have never learned anything. I would have never learned anything if I came in as the sleep expert. No way. I came in with some information And then I caught a really hard case and I was like, I don't know what to do here, but I'm going to ask some other people and I'm going to try and figure it out for you because I'm really committed to figuring this out. But I don't want to give you any recommendations or programming or advice that's going to set you backwards. So I'm going to start with the things I know, things that I know are going to work. So like bedtime stuff, you know, whatever, all this stuff, but 
yeah, I mean, my, my first hardest one was, um, a young, well, I mean, 16 young adult, I would call that a young adult, um, 15 or 16 was awake for four hours in the middle of the night, falling asleep by themselves, you know, like, you know, good sleep hygiene, all of that. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know. And so, you know, then we started talking about, okay, medications. And so then I was looking up medications. What medication is he on? I was looking up side effects. I was looking up this stuff. And I said, look, I think we should collaborate with your physician because what I'm finding is this medication has a sedative effect. And here's what I know about sedative effects, but I don't want to give you any advice because I'm just a BCBA. Turns out that was a a good route to go down. And that, you know, that sedative effect. So we changed, we altered the timing of the medications with the physician, with the collaboration. And then I learned. So now I learn, now I learned then I need to ask more questions about medications mm-hmm. and I need to be a little bit more of an ex, an expert, you know, in huge mm-hmm. air quotes, you know, I need to be a little bit more aware of the different medications that our kids tend to be on and their effects. Maybe they're asthma medications and their stimulants and they're getting their Alupent at like, you know, nine o'clock at night, Ooh, racing hearts. Okay. Let's, let's have a communication with your doctor and say, Hey, does it have to be at nine o'clock? Can we do it at six o'clock? Mm-hmm. You know, or can this medication be taken in the morning or does it have to be taken at night? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just have to work around these obstacles where they cannot take it at any other time. There are no alternatives. So how are we going to get the families more sleep? Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe we're not going to be able to adjust the child's sleep. But really what the problem is when the kids sleep is the problem, that's not the problem. It's that the parents not sleeping. That's the problem. That's a big problem. <laughs> big problem because the kid's going to probably sleep at some point or another. They're going to sleep it off. They're going to find, they're going to fall asleep on the bus. They're going to fall asleep in class. They're going to fall asleep on the couch in the afternoon. They're probably getting fine sleep. It's just all messed up. Um, but it's us, right? It's the adult. So I've had to kind of sometimes back off from focusing on the child's actual quality of sleep and say, look, I don't know how to fix this. So let's, let's talk about how we can get you more sleep. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about safety. Let's talk about your sleep. Can we sleep in rotations with, you know, another adult? Can we do like, you know, some kind of a, you know, a gate or something for the kids so he doesn't elope in the middle of the night because that's why you're sleeping with him. You know, I mean, there's, there's safety considerations. There's all sorts of things that we need to ask. So I guess the advice would just be like, none of us are, are experts and we all have room to learn. That willingness to learn and be asked a lot of questions. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. There's new information coming out all the time. We're also learning. I learned from this today. Thank you so much. I could listen to you talk forever. (laughs) This is so fascinating to me. Um, So thank you so much. Um, Like we mentioned before, for those people who want more of this, head over to Emily's website, readysetsleep.com. It's also in the show notes. Um, As well, Emily, we want to do a CEU with you. We mentioned in the fall that if you're a member of How to ABA, we'll have Emily do a CEU for us in the fall. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. fun, You guys, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.